Well, this morning I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, the very opening chapter, a familiar, very familiar passage, but one I think it's encouraging to look at again, especially at this time, and we will be focusing our attention on the 14th verse. But to have it in its context, or some of its context at least, we'll read the opening 18 verses. This is the word of the living God. Let us hear with faith. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, His own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Well, the grass withers, the flower falls to the earth, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's give thanks to God for his word and ask that he would grant us understanding. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who speaks. You are not silent. We thank you that you spoke in the beginning and the world came into existence. You said, let there be light, and there was light. And now the light of the world has come, the Lord Jesus Christ, and in his light we see light and we understand. We pray that we would have greater understanding, a greater love to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a greater abhorrence of sin and a love of righteousness and peace and goodness and truth. We pray that as we look into your word this morning, your Holy Spirit would search our hearts, convicting us, encouraging us, and equipping us to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Grant, O Father, that new birth would be given to all who hear. We pray that we would not be those who struggle against the light, who do not receive the one who has come, but joyfully we receive him according to his word, that word which stands firm in the heavens, fixed forever, that word that is from beginning to end and changes not. Now bless us by your word and by your Holy Spirit, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. 
Well, children, our scripture reading ended with, no one has ever seen God. And when I was young, I really wanted to see God. Have any of you ever felt that way? You really want to see God. I mean, just, I'd like to see God. Uh, that, you know, I, I grew up with all the Bible stories. I, you know, I went to church. I heard all these things again and again. And I can remember as a child just longing. I just wanted to see God. I guess probably the problem was that at that point in my life, I didn't have faith. I didn't see him by faith. I wanted to see him with my own eyes. And I thought that would, that would be the, the solution to everything. I thought that would be great. Wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be great if, if God were, were visible, if God were actually living in, in a place nearby where I, could, where I could go to him, where I could see him, where I could behold him? Well, I didn't get my wish <laughs> as a child in the way that I wanted it, in a, in a simply earthly fashion. But, but we do have the promise in God's Word that God is with us. I said to you, we're going to look particularly at the 14th verse of the passage we read. And it's a well-known verse for all of us. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory as of the only begotten from Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And you may notice that I've switched that up. The ESV has translated it only. Older translations, begotten. I think begotten is an important word for us to use here. If we're going to have a, a right understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity, we need to see the Son as the begotten, the only begotten, the eternally begotten, second person of the Trinity. Our larger catechism talks about the personal properties of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it says the Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is begotten of the Father, and the Holy Spirit proceeding both from Father and Son. And this is an eternal relationship of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But we read here that the Word became flesh. And this is the great mystery of the Christian religion, that God, who has not a body like men, who dwells in unapproachable light, condescended to this earth, we sang as we began our worship, lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb. The second person of the eternal Godhead entered into the body of a young Jewish maiden named Mary and was born of her, just like any other baby, in a natural way, and yet supernaturally, because there was no human father. And when Jesus came forth from the womb of his mother, he was different from every other child born ever, for he was without sin. He is the one who has come to dwell among us. He is God, come in the flesh. He's not God become man. Sometimes we say that. That's kind of sloppy. God doesn't change from being God, and man is not deified. And it is much more precise and wise of us to speak of Jesus as the God-man. He is one person in two distinct natures forever. And the relationship between the divine nature and the human nature of Jesus Christ is one that I'm not going to explain to you this morning because I can't. In fact, Theologians have chosen a, a fancy expression to describe that relationship. They, they call it the hypostatic union. And I, I like to tease candidates 
uh, who are coming for licensure or ordination, that they're, they're going to have to explain that to the presbytery in 25 words or less. And of course, it's incredibly unfair because no one can do it. That's why we call it the hypostatic union. It's this, it's this union of, of the divine and the human in one person, but two distinct natures forever. That is the orthodox Christian faith. It's what we hold to. It's what the saints have held to from the early days. It's what we confess in the Apostles' Creed, and particularly in the Nicene Creed. We confess our belief in the hypostatic union, even if we don't use that term. We believe that God is dwelling among us. Now, don't get scared. I want to look at a brief biblical history of God's dwelling with us. And we're going to go right back to the beginning because John here harkens back to the beginning as he begins this chapter. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's Genesis 1.1. Everybody knows that. God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning. And that is the work of the triune God. We're told here that the second person of the Trinity was there. So if I ask you the question, children, was Jesus present at creation? Careful, it's a trick question. Was Jesus present at creation? Well, yes and no. In his human nature, no, because he hadn't been born yet. But in his divine nature, as the second person of the Trinity, he was there. We're told plainly, the Word was there. And in Genesis 1, we read that the Spirit of God hovered over the water. The Spirit is there. The work of creation is the work of a triune God, the work of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit working together to create a universe that will bring glory to God. And when all is made, God looks over everything he's made and says it's very good because he's made man in his own image. Male and female, he has created them. And it's very important, children, to remember at this point, why did God make Adam and Eve? It wasn't because he was lonely. We need to make sure we understand that very clearly. God didn't make us because he was lonely. He didn't make us because he needed us to worship him. God didn't need us. I know that's a disturbing thought for some people. I I led a Bible study 30 years ago, and we started with this very subject, and a man who was there got very upset when I said that God doesn't need us, because, but he loves us. And I said, yes, he loves us, but he doesn't need us. But he loves us. And I said, yes, but you know, we're not really having an argument here. <laughs> he loves us, but he doesn't need us to be the objects of his love. The Father loves the Son and the Spirit. The Son loves the Father and the Spirit. The Spirit loves the Father and the Son. God is love. And there is that triune bond of love from all eternity. And it's perfect and fulfilled and it's not missing something. We as human beings, if we don't have someone to love, we feel something missing in our lives. We feel a lack of something. We're, 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 we're not complete. But God is not like us. We are to be like him. We are to be like God who created us in his image. And we need him. And he loves us. Let's make sure we keep that straight. Don't think that, that that puts us down as human beings in any way, shape, or form. It does not. God loved us so much that he sent Jesus into this world. The Word became flesh because of God's love for mankind lost. But it was not so in the beginning. God dwelt with man in a 
certain sense in the Garden of Eden. We don't know exactly all the details of what went on there, but we know from the references in Genesis that God was pleased to meet with Adam and Eve in the garden. In the cool of the day, he would walk with them and talk with them, and there was fellowship. There was, there was that thing that I longed for as a child, to see God. God was there, and they were there with him. I think about it sometimes. I long for it. But you know what? I may have missed that boat, but a better boat's coming, if I can put it that way. We're going to be taken into heaven. We're going to be with God, and we're going to be better off than Adam and Eve in the garden because they there were being set a test. Would they stay in the garden? Would they stay in that relationship with God? And of course, we know sadly they did not. But when we get to heaven, the test is over. We've passed because Jesus has passed for us. It's, it's, it's almost sneaky, isn't it? Don't, don't you wish you'd get somebody else to go and write the test for you, write the exam, and get perfect on it, and be counted as your mark? Well, that's, that's in effect what's happened. We're going to get into heaven because of Jesus' perfection, not our own. And we're going to have the presence of God forever. And it's never going to be taken away. Because once we're in heaven, we will have lost our ability to sin. And that's another mystery that really shakes me up. Because we're still going to be human. We're still going to be unique. We're still going to be creatures. But we're going to be incapable of doing anything to displease God. I hope that thought thrills your heart as much as it does mine. The idea that we won't be able to do anything displeasing to God in eternity, in heaven. It's a great thought. Well, it was how it was in the beginning. But Adam and Eve, we know, fell into sin. And they were clothed with shame. That was their, their first garment. And then they tried fig leaves. And then God clothed them in skins. And by shedding blood, he atoned for their sin, their sin of rebellion against him. And their communion with God was lost. You remember what happened? He drove them out of the garden. And at the gate, he placed a cherubim with a flaming sword so they could not reenter. You know, and ever since that time, we've been looking for God to dwell with us. We've been, we've been waiting for God to come back and bring us into his fellowship and to enjoy his presence. Now, again, don't be frightened. We're just going to move up one book to Exodus, and we're not going to go through all 66. We're just going to hit the high points here, the important points. In Exodus, what happens? Well, God's people are taken captive in Egypt. They're enslaved. They've gone there to escape the famine. God has sent the rest of Jacob's family there. They've prospered under Joseph's leadership, second under Pharaoh, number two in the, in the world order. I mean, this is, this is like being the vice president of the United States or something. Uh, he's, he's, he's the second most popular person, or popular, oh, wrong word, wrong word, powerful. <laughs> That's what I meant, not popular. We won't, we won't discuss the popularity of the, the vice president <laughs> now or ever. Please forgive me. <laughs> but he's the, most, he's the second most powerful person on the planet. And God prospers him and blesses him because he's a faithful man. He doesn't fall into sin. He serves God diligently all his days. And then God hears the cry of the prisoner in Egypt. He hears their, their groaning under the yoke of oppression that they're facing from their Egyptian taskmasters. And he sends them a redeemer, 
a man named Moses, who will lead them out of slavery into the land of promise. And he does so through the Red Sea and through the wilderness and to Mount Sinai, where he delivers to God's people those Ten Commandments. Now, you'd think they would have been happy about that. But they've already been grumbling and complaining, and they're going to grumble and complain more, and they're going to say, well, Moses is up the mountain speaking with God, where is he? And they're going to engage in idolatry, and even their high priest, Moses' brother Aaron, is going to be complicit in that. But God is merciful, and he intends to dwell among his people. And so we read in Exodus chapter 25, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel, that they would take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and finely twisted linen, goat's hair, tanned ram's skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for the setting, and for the ephod, and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so shall you make it. God says, I want to dwell with you. Do you want me to dwell with you? Do you want my dwelling place to be among you? If your heart moves you, if this is, if this is your desire, it's not just something you talk about. Here's, here's, here's where we can see that you, know, you put your money where your mouth is or your ram skins or your oil or your incense or whatever. Notice the list of things that God says to bring for an offering. As, as your heart moves you, if you really want to live with God and you want God to dwell with you in your midst, that as your heart moves you, bring these things. And you're going to build the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God with man. Now, God doesn't really live in a tent. We know that. But it's the sign of God's presence among his people that they build this tabernacle. And they don't do whatever they want, do they? God says, be very careful. You make this tabernacle. You make it just as I've shown you on the mountain, exactly by the pattern that I've given then God goes on to give very explicit directions about all the parts of the tabernacle and how it's to be done. And the people's hearts are moved, though they've argued that they should go back to Egypt, the food was better there, being a slave wasn't such a bad thing. You know, they've got all these problems still. How similar to us, or how similar we are to them. How our hearts vacillate and our obedience ebbs and flows. It's greater and lesser. But, but, you know, it's interesting that Moses has to finally tell them, stop, don't bring any more. We've got enough. God's gracious work in their hearts has moved them to provide more than enough for God to live with them, to make the place where his presence will be known among them. And the tabernacle moves around with them for, for years. It's there through the Exodus and the Judges until King David longs in his heart 
to build a house for God. Here I am living in a, a house of cedar, and God dwells in a tent. It's not right, he says to Nathan in 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'm going to build a house for God. He's got this great idea, and his heart's in the right place. And Nathan initially says, well, go ahead. That's a great idea. Go ahead and do it. But then God reveals to Nathan, this is not David's calling. God has not asked for a, for a palace to be built for him. Thank you very much, David. But you want to build me a house? But I'm going to build you a house. You want to build me a, a physical house where I could be said to dwell among you. But I'm going to build you a spiritual house. And I'm going to give you a line that will never end. And from your line will come forth a king who will sit on the throne forever. And you know, when we think about the incarnation, when we think about Christmas, this, should, this is what should come to our minds. You know, we, we remember about the, the shepherds, but let's also remember about those men who came, those three mysterious men from the east who came and bowed down before Jesus, who was king at his birth. And came looking for the one who was born, the king of the Jews. And they gave him royal gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Jesus is Lord at his birth. He is the fulfillment of God's promise to David to build him a spiritual house, to see him established upon the throne. Not David, but the son of David, that great messianic title that will be used again and again. And so the temple is built under Solomon's reign. And it's a beautiful, stately place. And when it is destroyed because of Israel's sin, because of the iniquity of God's covenant people, failure to keep faith with God, they're distraught. And as they see it being rebuilt, they they recognize that it doesn't have the glory it once had. And then that second temple is rebuilt by Herod. Herod rebuilds the temple, and it's finished in the days of Jesus, and people are very alarmed because Jesus makes this wild claim. You can tear down this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up again. And they're, they're still thinking physical terms. This temple? Even his disciples are, are thinking that way. In the beginning of Matthew 24, we, we read them remarking about, you know, look at this temple. Isn't it beautiful? And Jesus tells them about the destruction of Jerusalem that will come because of their apostasy, because of their turning away from him. And it's recorded also in Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel. And there they, they use even more descriptive language than Matthew does. Mark, it's called wonderful. In Luke, it's called beautiful and glorious sacrifices take place there. The temple has glory. In Jesus' day. But it's not a lasting glory. It's not a glory that's going to remain. Because, as I referenced in Luke 24, Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21, Jesus tells them this, this temple is going to be destroyed, and it was. And I don't believe it's ever going to be rebuilt, it's gone. But that doesn't mean that God won't live with us. It doesn't mean that God is not in our midst. He's in our midst in a very special way. That's why we read here, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, or tabernacled among us. He, he's with us. Not in a tent, not in a temple. He was in the days of his flesh, 
with John and the other apostles, with those in Jerusalem, both friends and enemies who beheld him and heard him and listened to him. But now he remains with us by his spirit. As we looked at the close of Matthew's gospel last week, Jesus said, and I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The word became flesh. He dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. This is John writing in the first place. John had seen his glory. When had John seen the glory of Jesus? Well, he'd seen the miracles. He'd seen the healings. He'd seen his, his great works of compassion and love. But he'd also gone up on the mountain with James and Peter. And behold, beheld, beheld the transfiguration of Jesus Christ as he was transformed. And he shone with glory, glory of his clothing, white like lightning, brighter than any one could clean them. The scriptures tell us that it defies description. Peter was overwhelmed. We remember, he's the one who's mentioned there. It's good for us to be here. Let me build three tabernacles. Let me, let me make three little booths that we can, we can stay here forever. You and Moses and Elijah, and we can, we can just stay on this mountain. We can just soak up this glory. Jesus says, no, that's, this was just a short, temporary unveiling of my glory. And you're not to repeat this to anyone. When they go down the mountain, they're silent. They've seen the glory. Peter remarks, we were on the, with him on the holy mountain. We saw his glory. John saw his glory. We read of his glory. We see it by faith. We see not just the, the transfiguration on that mountain, but we see the glorious mercy of, of Jesus Christ. As the leper comes to him and stretches out his hands, as if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, you weren't supposed to touch lepers. That would make you unclean. But the Son of God says, I am willing. And he reaches out his hand, and he touches him, and immediately the leper is clean. Jesus says, now go offer the sacrifices according to the law of Moses. Because there are people who read the opening of John's gospel and they say, ah, see, grace comes through Jesus, but law comes through Moses. We don't want law, we just want grace. Well, we've had two very good, I think, passages from the New Testament that teach us that Jesus upheld the law of Moses, as did his family. They took him to the temple to do for him according to the law of Moses. And then Jesus himself tells the healed leper, go and do according to the law of Moses. So we should never, ever see God's law given to Moses somehow antithetical to the work and ministry of Jesus Christ. Sadly, sadly, so much of the church has been taught that, that Moses preached a, a works righteousness. And Jesus preaches grace, law versus grace. And law and grace are not enemies. They meet together in the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus who perfectly kept the law, who obeyed the law and suffered the penalty of the law, fulfills God's gracious purpose for us in his own presence with us. He became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, the glory as of the only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is filled with grace. He will say in John's gospel after healing the man born blind, and that's 
if you don't know already, is one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. I, I just love that, that story because it shows the grace and truth of Jesus Christ and also shows a spunky blind man who's not afraid to stand up for what he believes. I, I love it. It's a great story. But at the end of it, Jesus says, for judgment I have come into the world. You think you can see, but you're blind. They're all, oh, how can you say that to us? Well, because they're blind. Because they won't see the, the glory and the truth of Jesus Christ. They won't see that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except by him. There is no other way to the Father. In him the Father dwells with us. No one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. The disciples will say, show us the Father and it's enough. Jesus says, Philip, have you been with me this long and you don't understand yet? You've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am God, come in the flesh. I've come to be among you. I've come to be with you, not as a, a little baby. You know, let's, let's never think of the eternal Son of God, always in the form of a baby. He grew in stature and in favor with God and man, and the grace of God was upon him. And now he is in glory and shall return from that glory that we might return with him into that everlasting glory. But now we have a foretaste, an appetizer, a, a teaser, as it were, of what it means to live with God. We've seen his glory the glory of the only begotten of the Father, filled with grace and truth. He comes to bring salvation to his people, to seek and to save that which was lost. In Luke chapter 2, we read that when they took him to be circumcised, they gave him the name Jesus, the name that the angel had given him before he was conceived. And remember what the angel says to Joseph. She shall bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, Savior. He comes to rescue us from ourselves, from the world, and from the devil that we might live with him forever. I still long to see Jesus. I didn't grow out of it, but I grew in my understanding of what it means to see Jesus. And what I want now is to be with Jesus forever, to be set free from the world that so quickly and easily entangles my thoughts and my life, and to see the one who has come from the Father filled with grace and truth. I hope that's your desire, not just at Christmas time, but at all times. To remember the one who came as a babe, born in humble circumstances, born to live a perfect life and die a sinless death. That that good news, not just of incarnation, but of substitutionary atonement, and resurrection, and ascension, the whole of Jesus' reality and being would be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Let's pray and ask God to bring that about, even through the simple means of his church and his people. Father, we do thank you.
that you sent forth your Son into this world, born of a woman, yet without sin, that he might become sin and carry away the sin of those who would believe on him for everlasting life. Father, we thank you that you have promised to dwell with us and that this is the glorious conclusion of your word that we one day will participate in the consummation of all things, in the new heavens and the new earth, the dwelling place of God with man, and we shall be with you evermore through the finished work of Jesus Christ, our hope and our salvation, and the one in whose name we pray. Amen.